Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, broadcasting remotely. Connecticut may be opening up slowly, but plenty of us are still staying home for the majority of the day. Over the last three months, how many of us have struggled at times to coexist with family members or roommates? But there are plenty of Americans who've experienced this pandemic by themselves. The U.S. Census says that's nearly 36 million people. Today, where we live, we learn how this isolation affects our mental health. Coming up later in the show, we talk to author Aspen Mattis, who chose solitude to heal from a traumatic event. And later, we talk to Shelley Best about how meditation and yoga can be tools to combat the stress and loneliness we may be feeling. Have you felt more alone alone during this pandemic? What have you done to stay connected to others? We want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joins us via Zoom. Jamie Ayton is a psychologist and founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, Jamie, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. So uh, briefly, if you could tell us a little bit about your institute, I believe you founded this after you've experienced uh, trauma as well. Correct. So the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, I founded this uh, nine years ago. And what I first saw the need for this was after moving to South Mississippi just six days before Hurricane Katrina hit. And so going through that trauma, I was just able to see the importance of mental health. And so several years later, I had the opportunity to move to Wheaton College, where I founded HDI. Hmm. It's an interesting time we're in now because unlike something like Hurricane Katrina, which was a natural disaster, uh, we're in this uh, very strange time where a public health crisis has kept so many of us isolated uh, from others uh, for our to keep healthy. But I wanted to talk about the impact of loneliness, uh, Jamie. Uh, we know that it's good for us to be active, to eat well, but what does it mean when we can't socialize like we used to? Well, one of the things that we found in our research at HDI, so we've done research all over the globe and from natural disasters to the Ebola outbreak. And one of the biggest findings that we've been able to see across all of our data has been the importance of social support, that when we feel connected to others, it helps to protect us and buffer us from a number of negative uh, mental health symptoms like anxiety or depression and even trauma. So when we are alone and we're not able to be with others, uh, that can then bring on these these symptoms? Absolutely. So the more isolated we are, the more prone we are to struggling with mental health-related issues. And one of the unique aspects of uh, the current pandemic has been that one of the things that heightens it is people's lack of sense of lack of control. So for instance, um, I can't wait to hear Aspen share her story. And hers was one of... Uh, it was her voluntarily wanting to go and to isolate uh, as a way of healing. But for individuals where they feel this is forced upon them, it's going to cause a lot more challenges. Mm. 
Uh, what do we know? I know this has only been going on in our country for more than three months, this pandemic. What do we know about how this forced isolation, this physical distancing from others is impacting Americans right now? We're seeing a huge uptick across a number of different mental health struggles that people normally have, but have been incredibly heightened by the current pandemic. So some of those include generalized anxiety disorder. We're seeing higher levels of major depressive episodes. We're also starting to see um, how it's triggering some individuals who've had trauma in the last year and starting to trigger and bring back some of those painful memories for them. We're also starting to see, sadly, an increase in domestic violence as well. Mm. That sounds particularly, it's troubling because if you're in a, a normal environment where you might be going through um, some men- mental health issues, maybe someone that's close to you would notice if uh, you may be acting differently or you seem uh, more withdrawn uh, from others. But if, again, we're in a pandemic uh, in our homes and maybe there's a phone call or a text or maybe you're on social media, you're not the same. You're not connected the same way that you were previously, Jamie. Yes, absolutely, that this difference in connection can make it harder where people start to fall through the cracks and start to get missed where had they been going to work regularly, somebody would have noticed if maybe they stopped showing up or maybe they showed up and were looking very disheveled or you started to see major swings in their mood that were atypical for that person, we're much more likely to notice those things in person. And so it's a lot easier for people to kind of fall through and be forgotten during these difficult times. Mm -hmm. As a psychologist, do you find that there is a stigma also attached to being upfront about feeling alone or, uh, you know, just the the, the negative impact on somebody that they may not want to tell people that they're feeling this way? Yeah, mental health stigma definitely can create a barrier that can make it hard for others to access uh, appropriate care. And the other issue that's challenging with that is that actually many people aren't fully aware that they're struggling with the issue as much as they actually are. And so between the lack of awareness and education about mental health, plus the additional stigma level, it can really start to uh, make it difficult for others to reach out. You're hearing Jamie Ayton on Zoom. He's a psychologist and founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College in Illinois. As we talk about how, again, this physical distancing, social distancing that many of us have been under over the last three months has taken a toll on Americans, especially 36 million Americans who live by themselves. Uh, we also want to hear from you today um, to find out how you've been navigating uh, through this time. The number 888-720-9677. Do you you live alone? What are some steps that you've taken to stay connected with family and friends, even if you're not seeing them at work or uh, usually uh, uh, when you're able to hang out with them before the pandemic? Again, the number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I I was reading an interesting story in Time Magazine, Jamie. I wanted to read this quote. If the stereotype of a lonely person is a frail, elderly adult who lives alone, the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the truth that was there all along. Anyone, anywhere, of any age can experience loneliness. I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Again, we often think that it's the elderly uh, that is most at risk, and there are uh, definitely uh, reasons why you should check in with people who are senior citizens, especially during this time. But what about the millennial generation? What are they experiencing, even if they are tapped into social media? Well, you know, one of the things that we had seen in some studies that had come out prior to the pandemic was where researchers have been studying for a while now about how well do people feel connected to others in general. So despite the fact 
that as a country, we have greater access to technology and are more connected in some ways through technology than we've ever been. There were already sky high levels and reports of loneliness, especially among millennials prior to the pandemic. And that's only been compounded. And so looking at some recent data that was coming out from polls was showing that millennials in particular seem to be struggling perhaps just as much in times as the uh, older adults. Mm. And what do we know about why that was, Jamie, why millennials were feeling more lonely even before the pandemic hit? Well, one of the major hypotheses that has been shared across some different studies has been that one of the reasons that this is occurring is because we start to compare ourselves socially to other people. So if you think about what your life actually looks like during the pandemic, for example, so if you're isolated or you're feeling like you're struggling, but I've noticed even if I flip through my own social media feed, that I see others that I'm friends with who are posting all these great pictures of things they are still doing or maybe things they've made or, you know, telling these positive stories. And you start to wonder after a while, am I the only one that feels like this? Everybody else seems to be doing okay. So it's that comparison that really heightens that additional level of isolation. I like also thinking about uh, Zoom fatigue. So many of us are, are stuck using uh, this platform to communicate. Even during doing a talk show, Jamie, I much prefer talking with people in person. Uh, and so many of the people that we've interviewed over the last three months, even if they're in Connecticut, we've had to connect via Zoom. And so that can right, be taxing, right. being stuck in front of a screen and not being able to see someone and make eye contact. And I actually wrote a piece for Psychology Today a while back on Zoom fatigue. And one of the things that I noticed before I wrote that just was how exhausted I was feeling day in and day out after having to shift to remote working and just realized suddenly many conversations that would have just been a simple email or could have been stopping and talking to somebody in the hallway that would have addressed the issue now would take three or four different you know, Skype or Zoom calls to be able to work something out. And with the Zoom, one of the other things that a lot of people don't recognize is that for some individuals, it can also be challenging for them to engage in Zoom. Because if you think, for example, about your typical work day, you're interacting in a community there or a building perhaps. But now people are actually getting to see a glimpse into your own home, you know, to hear your family in the background if you're living with others or to be able to see the pictures on your walls. And that can feel threatening to some people. You can join our conversation again with Jamie Aiton, a psychologist, uh, the number 888-720-9677. Again, we want to hear about what you've been experiencing because you've had to isolate during the pandemic. Uh, Nancy's calling in. Nancy, you're on the show. Hey there. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Go hey, ahead. I'm just, uh, hi. I want to let you guys know that this is a huge issue for my clients. I'm an outpatient therapist in the Boston area, and I'm just driving along, and I've heard so many people's mental health, their anxiety and their depression increase, their symptoms have increased, their well-being has decreased during this time, and a lot of it has to do with being cut off from others, particularly in the people who live alone, and one of the things that I've often talked with my clients about is how community is a key factor in the prevention of dementia and in just quality of life. We know that the UK created a Ministry of Loneliness a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. and the US seems to ignore that and thinks that everybody should live alone and this is how you really show that you made it. But I wonder if just as this is a time to really bring Black Lives Matter 
to the forefront that maybe we could start thinking about housing options for people in America so that there's not such a stigma against living with people who aren't your family. Mm. Thank you, Nancy, uh, for your call. I know that you said that you're in the car, but can I ask you, as a counselor, what are some ways that you try to help your clients cope when they're feeling isolated, more isolated? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, part of it is teaching them how to be in the present moment. This is one of the hardest things for us when we think about our concerns. What if? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? But the more that we can stay centered in, how am I doing right now? Am I okay right now? Can I find something to be grateful for? Can I reconnect with nature? That's a really huge piece right there. Can I get outside and hear some birds singing? Can I touch Mm. the grass? Can I look at the sky? Can I smell freshly cut grass? I find that to be a really powerful exercise for people. Well, thank you, Nancy, so much for calling in to where we live. I wanted to go back to Jamie Aiton, our guest uh, on Zoom. I wonder if you could respond to what Nancy was saying about what she's hearing from her clients and maybe add more to the coping strategies for people who may be struggling right now. I really appreciated what Nancy just shared. And I think she's spot on that this current pandemic is really starting to compound the stress that people are going through and really like those ideas that she shared for helping to cope. And in fact, um, I'm actually having this call uh, sitting outside doing the Zoom so that that way I can (laughs) experience some nature. So Nancy, thanks. And I want you to know I'm already putting your advice to work. So uh, glad to be able to be in nature as much as I can right now. And one of the things I often tell people who are struggling is to not be afraid of reaching out to let others know what they need. And another part that I often encourage is for them to start to monitor their amount of media exposure. And I'm not just talking about television, but also social media. So for those that are already feeling anxious, I would encourage them that if they start to notice that their anxiety continues to increase or they start to feel like they almost compulsively have to check the news about what's happening next, that those are probably some good signals that you need to actually start reducing the amount of media and, and reduce the amount of time that you're spending uh, tracking what's going on with COVID. Give yourself permission to take a break. And then the last thing that I would encourage is that people try to think about what is it that I was doing before the pandemic to be able to cope in healthy ways that I might be able to do now. And I know some people listening might say, well, that's not practical. I used to go swimming every day as a way of coping and now all the pools are closed. So in those cases, think about what was it about swimming that, for example, you found meaningful. And so, for instance, actually, I had a client like this a while back. And as he started to talk through it, realized that it wasn't just the physical activity, but it was more about having time to be able to just kind of like what Nancy said, to be present, that swimming helped him be present by being physically active. And so he was able to now get some very similar benefits from walking and going through the park and being able to um, set new goals for himself. So go back to those things that you did prior to COVID-19 as best as you can. Um, Through your work with, again, uh, the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, also uh, living through uh, your own trauma of going through Hurricane Katrina, being displaced, wanting to help others, 
after we're in these periods of an unsettling times, there we like to think about what we're going to do, uh, you know, how we're going to get back to normal. What do you anticipate knowing what has happened uh, with how humans uh, both uh, process and then try to recover from trauma? Uh, what should we be looking for uh, in life after COVID-19 that we need to be careful about um, as we hope we all hope that life goes back to normal relatively soon? Well, you know, I used to work at a private practice that had a sign on the wall that gave the definition of, of normal. So I hope this isn't too scientific, but the way it was defined was a setting on your washing machine. So, you know, recognizing that uh, normal, sorry for the dry humor there, that normal <laughs> is highly subjective. And what's normal for one person may not be quite normal for, for another individual. But I actually wrote about this in my uh, latest book, A Walking Disaster, and it, in that book, I, I talk some about not only going through Katrina, but also going through the personal disaster of stage four colon cancer at the age of 35. And so some of these conversations that we're having like right now are very similar to that experience where I had to isolate for a year as I went through treatments. And I'm, I'm glad to be in good health now. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I kept looking forward to as I was going through that year long battle against cancer was for life to get back to normal. And what I found was, in many ways, it hasn't gone completely back to normal, that in many ways, it's a new normal. And, and that's okay. And there's challenges that come with that. But we also need to recognize that things are going to be different going forward. You know, so if you think about, you know, after 9-11, our country shifted, there was something different, uh, kind of a lack of sense of security. Or I think about how many different disasters I've been in where uh, and even I do this still to this day where I talk about life before Katrina and after mm -hmm. Katrina, life before cancer, life after cancer. And so it's important to recognize going into this that though many things will go back to normal, there also are going to be some changes. But the more that we can start to accept those changes, the more healthy our long term response will be. Well, we're going to be heading to break soon, Jamie, but just uh, before we go, if you could give uh, some tips for people who may be listening about, about how they can work to support others around them, whether it's people in their family or even their neighbor who they may not see as much uh, outside uh, because of the pandemic. Well, you know, even though I'm a professional helper and a big part of my job is going around teaching others how to help people and what to do. Uh, to support others during difficult times. I, I just want to acknowledge that even though that's my experience as a professionally trained person, I still struggle as well on sometimes knowing how to reach out and to uh, help support friends. So if you're struggling, you're, you're not alone in that. But I, I want you to know that one of the things that we've learned through our research and one of the things I've learned going through my own traumas is that your presence is more important than any words you could ever say. So don't let worrying about, am I going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing get in the way? instead show up and in this case i mean show up virtually so send a text message have if you used to have coffee with a friend every saturday morning sit on your back patios and skype one another and drink your coffees from your home but try to find some ways to stay in connection uh, my daughters one of the things that they did has they've gone to some friends houses and with chalk written little notes uh, to neighbors to let them know that they're thinking about them and we've had neighbors do that to us or to put signs in the yard these just little small reminders that we're not alone can go so far and make such a big difference. Jamie Aiton, again, is a psychologist and founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College in Illinois. Jamie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, sometimes seeking solitude can help process difficult events in your life. Author Aspen Mattis joins us to talk about her journey hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And as we go into break, I want to share an essay from Where We Live producer, Tess Terrible. She shares with us how she's processed the last three months. In late February, I moved from Washington, D.C. to West Hartford. During my first week working at Connecticut Public Radio, I started covering the COVID-19 crisis. By my second week, we were getting ready to shelter in place. I don't really know anyone in Connecticut. I don't have roommates or a romantic partner. During the quarantine, I've stayed busy learning to do my new job from home. I do Zoom hangouts, Netflix parties, and I check in with family and friends often. I consider myself very lucky. I haven't gotten sick and neither has anyone I know. But quarantine is still incredibly difficult. There is no doubt that mental health atrophies and isolation. My mental health has been no exception to that. By my second week in isolation, I started to feel the depression and the loneliness start to sprout. The late philosopher and theologian Jean Venier once said, loneliness is a taste of death. I had to get into a routine. Every day I am up by 8 a.m., I work until 4, then I exercise. I meditate at 9.30, I read, and I'm in bed by 10. I like books about solo adventures that lead to self-discovery. Cheryl Strayed's Wild is a favorite. This is not the adventure I would have chosen, but it is the one I have found myself in. There is a line from a real cup home I love. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. It's been nearly 12 weeks since we started sheltering in place. I have used this time to work through all that's unsolved in my heart. I've come to the realization of how meaningful this time of solitude has been for me. And even on difficult days, I'm tremendously grateful for that. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Aspen Mattis grew up in New England, but when it was time to go off to college, she went west to Colorado College in Colorado Springs. But her freshman year started off in a horrible way, and she ended up dropping out. Mattis didn't go back home. Instead, she went into the woods, hiking the more than 2,600-mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. She would write about that experience in her book, Girl in the Woods. Aspen joins us now on Zoom. Aspen, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. So what happened to you at the start of your freshman year, Aspen? Um, so at the start of my freshman year, I, um, I was raped by another freshman in my dorm room um, on the second day of school. So before classes had actually even started and before I had any friends or knew anyone there. And um, I, I reported the assault to the college. And um, I, I remember being shocked that like such a tiny college with just 2000 students even had um someone who was called a rape response coordinator. I thought like, how could there possibly be enough rapes to warrant such a position? But I mean, I've, I've since learned that, you know, somewhere between one in four and one in five women 
um, at college will be sexually assaulted during their educations. And it's actually a very necessary position. And that's even a little bit more disturbing um, to me. But I reported it and um, uh, we went through the college's system, which was a a conflict mediator, um, as if like a rape could be mediated, <laughs> like a playground fight between kids. Um, and I testified and the, the boy testified and the mediator concluded that the findings were inconclusive, um, which effectively meant there were no consequences and, um, and he was found innocent. So, um, uh, he was still, I would still see him on campus. And then <laughs> for reasons that are still not clear to me, I'm not sure why the college decided mm. to do this, but the administration a couple months after moved the boy from his dorm on the other side of campus into my dormitory on the floor directly above me. So I would see him oh. all the time um, like in the elevator and in the hallways of where I lived. And I just really realized that at that point that my school was not going to help me and I really had to help myself mm -hmm. and I had to leave, leave that place. And, um, what I decided I was going to do was I was going to walk from Mexico to Canada through California and Oregon, Washington, as you said, mm -hmm. following the, the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, and I was going to do it alone. And, um, and I did. And, um, yeah, and it was just a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. And, like, I, I can't even imagine what my life would look like now if I hadn't made that very crazy choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, first off, Aspen, I'm very sorry to hear that happened to you as a, a young a college student. You were 19 at the time. And the fact that nothing happened to your perpetrator is also really upsetting to hear. And so we're very sorry to hear that happened to you. When you said that you decided to move, to, to leave school and to go to the Pacific Crest Trail, this is like more than 2,600 miles. Why did you decide to do that? What was it about, um, you know, again, uh, we, I think about when I was a, a freshman and it's a big transformative time uh, to go from living with your family to then uh, living at a college campus and learning more about yourself. And then this very traumatic thing happened to you. So this idea that you wanted to be alone, hiking, uh, what did you think that you would get from that experience? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think it's it's interesting because what I thought I was going to get from the experience and what I actually got were so, so different. Um, but what I thought I wanted was just to like say like, just, you know, forsake people and just to like be like, you know what, people, you know, like the, the college administration and all the the infrastructure that I had so much faith in and and you know the the culture on the campus and like the you know like college boys and the fraternity culture like I couldn't deal with it I didn't believe in it I didn't feel like it was safe or right or any you know anything like that and I just wanted to like leave it and disappear and you know it was kind of like this fantasy of like you know like somehow leaving would kind of disappear also the the trauma I felt and the and just the the disorientation and the and the shame and everything. So 
But in fact, of course, that's not what happened. Um, mm. I, um, in the beginning, actually, so about, um, at least when I hiked the trail, about 400 people attempted the through hike that year. And many of them start right around the same time of year because um, there's a, a narrow weather window with snow mm -hmm. in the high Sierra and um, snow in Washington state. So everyone starts around April. And so I, I did in fact see many people at the beginning because um, about 400 people started off at the Mexican border around when I did. And I had actually fleed, like I'd gone to the one place on earth where like men multiply and women divide other than maybe like the military or something because about 10 men attempt to hike the trail for every one, one woman. Um, and Were so it actually became like yeah. a very specific kind of like immersion therapy, like that I mm. hadn't expected or anticipated, but like again and again, I would encounter men and young men in the wilderness now. And again and again, they were mm. kind and respectful and I kind of, discovered for myself that like rape was not normal and I was safe in the world mm -hmm. in the body in which I had to keep living and that was so healing and it was actually a conscious choice um, I made like after about 700 miles on the trail to try to actually get some time alone in the wilderness and I did um, starting in in central California and, and through um, southern Oregon for about a thousand miles I hiked mm. exclusively alone. You're hearing Aspen Mattis here on Where We Live. She's joining us via Zoom, an author of Girl in the Woods. She's talking about this time in her life when she decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail after uh, being raped in college. And I understand, Aspen, that that's about two months of self-chosen isolation. What did you learn about yourself during this time? Well, yeah, that... So the, the two months alone were definitely the most challenging um, experience I had on the Pacific Crest Trail. And it was, it was a time of really, it was the first time in my life um, at 19 that I didn't have like the voices of so many other people telling me what I should do or what I should think or what I should feel in my mind. Like even the most benevolent voices, you know, that are like of, of my parents and um, of friends, but like it was the first time in my life where I really had no option other than to just sit with myself and walk with myself and and discover like how do I actually feel about that or like and to really like see with some clarity that you know short shorts don't cause rape and alcohol doesn't cause rape and weed doesn't cause rape rapists cause rape and it's really that simple nothing causes rape other than rapists and it sounds so obvious obviously now mm -hmm. but to me it hadn't been obvious until that time alone really seeing um things more clearly and and zoomed out from all the noise mm -hmm. i could really get the signal of my of my soul um more clearly 
uh, we're all living in a strange place right now where we're being forced to uh, isolate and keep physical distance from the people in our lives that we're used to seeing uh, every day. And at times that can be very lonely. When you were on the trail processing again what happened to you, uh, learning more about yourself uh, because you were alone, how did you get through those moments where you felt very alone uh, when you didn't have uh, that support network near you? Mm, such a good question. Well, I guess for me, there were kind of two different salvations. And one of them was actually in creativity. Um, I had a notebook with me and I wrote poems and I wrote I wrote my experiences and I I really found that when I was creating something that excited me, it transported me to like a, a place of of like thrill and flow and joy and excitement. And it really didn't matter if I was, you know, with a, a hundred friends or if I was alone, it was it was the same place that I would go to. And so creativity really became an oasis and I really discovered writing as my calling during that time so so potently um and then yeah the other thing was the other salvation which will sound kind of like a non-answer <laughs> was really to feel the despair and to feel the sadness and to like not numb it and not you know i had no like you know alcohol or any of the crutches i'd been using um before the trail on the trail so the you know the cliche is is like the only way out is through. And I really found that to be true for me because it's like, you can feel all these like, you know, deeply depressing waves of emotion and like isolation. And then you're not dead and you're still okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of a new gratitude for the next day and the next sunrise. And I, I really found that because like of the extreme and this is a little different than the the quarantine situation that people are experiencing at home. But for me on the trail, there was kind of an extreme uh, sensory deprivation. So like, you know, no computers, no, you know, no contact at all um, really with people. So I like every single uh, bit of sensory input seemed sort of hyper, hyper vivid and mm -hmm. hyper beautiful, like, you know, like, rainbows or like mist in the morning or like waterfalls or even just like lichen on a rock or moss on the ground just seemed extra special mm. <laughs> which sounds like um sounds strange but um in that no like, it, it's actually an aspen it sounds lovely <laughs> it's uh, to be able to be in nature and to recenter yourself and to be to observe things that uh, many of us may not uh, observe uh, during a, a regular work day or school day uh, also i wanted to ask you aspen again we're talking with author aspen mattis uh, who wrote the book girl in the woods about uh, the time when she chose to hike the more than 2600 pacific crest trail um 2600 mile Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, you know, this also takes a, a toll on your body. This is not a cakewalk uh, uh, hiking <laughs> from Mexico to Canada. Can you tell me how you uh, 
were able to do it. And it's not easy to survive in the wilderness. Uh, many people on this side of the, our country, uh, on the East Coast, many people will hike the AT and they know someone who has. And it's important to have boxes sent in certain areas that you can pick up supplies. And I'm just curious how you did it. Yeah, so, I mean, on a, like, a physical level, it was definitely extremely challenging. Like, I was I was hiking between, my biggest day was 40 miles, and my average day was more closer to, like, a marathon, like, around 26 miles, 25 miles. Um, and I think, like, on a physical level, I think the only thing that can really prepare you for a long-distance hike is a long-distance hike. So I was very unprepared in many ways when I started, but within about two weeks of hiking every day, more and more miles, like my body sort of learned a new normal. And it's sort of like I, like I trusted my legs and they grew stronger. And it was very empowering to discover what my body was capable of. Um, and that I was so much, so much stronger than I thought I was um, when I was 19. And I think that that's a really empowering discovery for anyone. There are so many things that we think we can't do that we actually we actually can. <laughs> um, but on a logistical level, my yeah, my my parents were so supportive, and they sent me boxes to about about every hundred miles. I would come to a small town, and there'd be a box of food at the post office there for me. And mm. they support they they supported my through hike, and and supported me emotionally to do it they they didn't like try to stop it and i owe them so much for that because mm -hmm. it it really did change change the whole trajectory of my future mm -hmm. I mentioned um, that uh, many people are still spending a majority of their day at home, whether it's at work or uh, they have uh, children to watch who can't go to daycare during this pandemic. Uh, they're not in school, uh, Aspen. What advice do you have for people who may be listening, who are feeling isolated? Maybe they don't have family or friends or children in their home, and they really are alone and they're struggling. Uh, what would you tell them mm. in terms of, of getting through each day? Wow. So for me, like, just like drawing on the times I've been really alone and on that 1000 miles alone, like, like, I guess this might not be a tool for everyone, but, but creativity and self exploration can truly be a salvation in terms of like, it's a place you can go that like, that is never lonely, which sounds so ironic because you can only access it when you're alone. But it's almost like um, when I, in, I'm sure it looks different for every person, like for some someone, it might be writing songs, for someone, it might be painting, for someone, it might be building model trains in a world of model trains. And for me, it's, it's definitely writing. Um, I think like taking this time that you never would have had having so much time, you know, alone, taking this time and using it for something that you always wanted to do, but you never had time to do before and really leveraging this extra time alone, <laughs> however that looks, can be really fulfilling. Well, I want to thank Aspen Mattis for joining us here on Where We Live. She's author of Girl in the Woods, also the book Your Blue is Not My Blue. Aspen, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm actually working on a third uh, a third book called Magic Afterlife, um, and it's about 
It's about the death of a friend who passed away when she was 25 and the aftermath of that. And um, yeah. Mm. Well, we can't wait to uh, learn more about that book when it comes out. Aspen, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, there's a lot happening in the world right now. It can be overwhelming. We're going to hear from visual artist Shelley Best about the tools she uses and recommends to others de-stress, especially if you're isolated from others right now. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Millions of Americans have shifted to working from home during the pandemic, while others have lost their jobs or have been forced to continue in-person work. Listen all next week for a Where We Live special series looking at the future of work, from telecommuting to what it means to be an essential worker. We want to hear from you. That series starts Monday, June 8th. We hope you can join us. And joining us now on the phone is Shelly Best. She's a visual artist, a yogini, an equity warrior, a creative placemaker. Best says trauma can live inside our bodies, and one of the ways to work through it is to move. Shelly, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. Thank you. I just heard uh, from our previous guest, uh, I wanted to just reiterate what she said about uh, tips for people who are feeling isolated right now. Uh, She said, creativity and self-exploration are places to go where you never feel alone. Uh, Shelley, I want to find out how you're using art and moving yoga uh, to help uh, during these uh, difficult times. Well, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a friend just about this and One of the things I recognize is I'm so grateful that years ago I started doing work on my inward self so I could be my own company. Because for so many people, the isolation is hard because we find it difficult to be alone with ourselves. And so one of the things that I really focus on is the importance of uh, being in that quiet time with myself so it can be pleasant company. And so that's part of what I really look at when it comes to moving into things like yoga and mm-hmm. art in times like these. We heard from a caller earlier from Unionville. Uh, she wasn't able to stay on uh, the line. She's 86 years old. She lives alone. All of her children live in other states. And she says for her, reading has been very helpful, especially when she can't sleep. Her children mail her books. But I'm wondering if you could talk more about how we as individuals can reach out to the people around us, not just our family, but maybe that elderly neighbor who is struggling because isolation is so debilitating for people. Well, in addition to all the other things I do, I'm also a pastor of a church. And so we've had the experience of creating community in this virtual space. Mm -hmm. And so it's been so important that we connect with phone calls daily where people come together and have conversation and check in. And then as a whole in the community, it's doing things like having that shared Zoom call where we all can just sort of sit and hang out and be together in that kind of way. And it is having the experience of when you hear that still small voice inside mention someone's name, 
get on the phone and call them. And it's not just to help them. It often ends up being something that helps you because that connection with someone else can remind you of the good times that you had when we had the freedom to be out and about. And you can start to make plans for what you want to do in the future. I have found this time to be a great opportunity to reach out to people I haven't talked to in a long time just to touch base and reconnect and share that we're all in this together. Besides the pandemic and being isolated because we're in a public health crisis, Shelley, uh, this has been a, a especially difficult week uh, for uh, many Americans who are processing uh, yet another police killing of an unarmed black man. How do you cycle through what has happened and what is your how do you talk about it with uh, people in your network? Well, without a doubt, the last few years have been challenging with this current administration. And Mm -hmm. so for many of us, we have limited our news intake to avoid seeing who was in the White House. But in these times, we have to pay attention because of the protesting and because of what is going on in our world. So it is about having those difficult conversations with friends and really processing what are we seeing? What does this feel like? You know, do you feel tired or overwhelmed? And it's just putting it out there because this is profoundly painful. And, you know, I'm 58 years old, so I was a civil rights kid. I grew up being a part of the movement. I grew up in a family like that. But what I'm seeing now, the pain is beyond. I think we were more conditioned in the 60s and 70s for the pain. But now with the newer generation that we have, people just don't have the infrastructure to deal with this. The injustice is profoundly painful. And so we have to find ways to deal with it and be in it for the long haul. Because when you activate the fullness of your rage, it's really hard to maintain that. And so, yes, we can be angry, but we've got to process that out of our bodies so we can stay engaged in the bigger work. Shelley Best, tell us um, how you recommend people process it out of their bodies. I mentioned that you practice yoga. You're also a visual artist. Uh, Tell me about how these tools help you and how they can help others. Well, one of the most simple things that people can do, even if they don't do something like um, yoga practice with the asana, doing the postures, it could be an aspect of yoga like yoga nidra, which is really taking a nap. What if you just made yourself profoundly comfortable, and you could be laying on a yoga mat or on your couch, make yourself comfortable, have the pillows in place, and just lay your body out and just focus on your breathing, breathing deeply, letting things go. And as I start in a yoga class, I'll say to my students, you know, just quiet your mind. If thoughts come, just let them drift away like clouds do in the sky, but focus on your breath. And so if you allow yourself just to lay out and focus on breathing, you'll find that you lower that blood pressure, you start to feel some deep relaxation, you release the tension, and that can be a healing thing to just lay down and breathe. Or as some people say, there's a benefit also in just taking a nap. Allowing yourself 20 minutes to nap and to relax can be a healing experience as well because it activates the parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. and it helps us to sort of release the stress. 
I was watching one of your videos, Shelley, and you talk about the importance of having sacred spaces, so whether it's in your home or in your office. I think of my sacred space as my garden. I love to be outside, uh, my hands in the dirt, um, just enjoying the beauty around uh, where I live. Uh, if people want to um, think about putting together a sacred space, uh, how do they go about doing that? Well, these days, especially with the quarantine, I have left in my living room, my yoga mat and props are left out all the time. Now I don't put them away. So that way, anytime I want, I can get into that comfortable space, laying down, resting, and being reminded that I have a place in my house where I can release and relax. Also, people can put together things that just make them feel joy, like on your desk having some photographs of children or family members or beautiful scenery just so you can be reminded that can be sacred and having things around you. Like when I have Zoom calls, because of course we all are having so many Zoom calls, in the corner view when somebody sees my Zoom scene, there are candles that are set up with some artwork so it looks like a little corner altar. So when people have a Zoom call with me. It's not just the usual background. They can see that even in the call, there's sacred space, and that's to call us all to the sacred. Candles are wonderful, having aromatherapy. And then, as you said, nature is so important because I know with this quarantine, we're going to be around home longer than expected. I'm doing a makeover of my deck, just ordered my new umbrella, going to make sure I have that space to sit and enjoy nature be comfortable, and to relax and find peace. Mm. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with Shelley Best again, who's a visual artist and equity warrior, Yogini. Uh, she helps build community, help create the 224 eco space uh, in Hartford. And you're also an ordained minister. So we'd love to have you back, Shelley, to talk more with us here on Where We Live. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And you take care of yourself. Thank you. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones today. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>